Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey, welcome in. It is Downtown, the podcast. Brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Welcome in to episode number 275. Rich Kimball here along with Carrie Haskell. Two terrific conversations and, uh, well, a couple of uh, returnees to the podcast this week. A little bit later on, music legend Judy Collins will visit with us. Uh, talk about her most recent album, which is her first ever collection of all original tunes. And uh, talk about her current tour and some of her musical history uh, as well. But up first, one of her absolute favorites on the program. He is an Emmy and Golden Globe nominated actor, author, environmentalist, activist, and always a treat to talk with. He uh, joins us to discuss his brand new memoir, which is an absolute blast to read because he's worked with everybody in Hollywood and beyond through the years. The book is called To the Temple of Tranquility and Step on It, our conversation with Ed Begley Jr. here on Downtown. Ed, it's great to have you back with us. And, and I will tell you that the thing that stood out to me in reading this terrific book, book is your your sense of gratitude. Thank you, Rich, and I am likewise grateful to be on with you again. I always have a great conversation with you, and so I appreciate you taking the time with me, buddy. Well, the book is is delightful, and I, I guess right up front, we should we probably thank your daughter Hayden for making this possible. Exactly. <laughs> what happened was she, for better or for worse, it started with my daughter saying, "Let me just." capture on my iPhone some of these stories that you tell about this one and that in the business and other things having nothing to do with the business, just incredible things that you've encountered in your life. And I'll get as much of it as I can of your, you know, 70 some odd years in show business uh, on my iPhone, you know, my uh, battery and data plan allowing. So we started doing it. And pretty soon I went, wait a minute, maybe I'll start writing some of this stuff down. And Maybe I'll meet a ghostwriter one day who'll want to do it. And I, after a few more pages, I went, I don't want to turn this over to anybody, including my daughter. I want to do it myself. And I did it, and I had a ball writing it. Well, there are some remarkable stories, and you have encountered so many amazing people in your life and in your career. But you were, you were pretty unsparing and, uh, and pretty hard on yourself in discussing your battles with addiction. Yeah, I had a real... Uh, bad decade in the 70s in many key ways. I had a lot of good fortune in the 70s, too. I, my first wife and I had two wonderful children I'm extremely close to to this day. But, uh, you know, I had some, some downs with the ups, and the downs were very down. I not only drank a quart of vodka nearly every day from 71 through 78, but I also operated a vehicle, Rich, and I do not recommend that at all. The fact that I didn't kill anybody is one of my biggest... Uh, forms of gratitude. If I had somehow killed myself, that would have been, you know, write that guy off. He deserved it. But if I had harmed a person or a family in another vehicle or pedestrians, I I don't think I could have lived with that. Well, we're, we're going to be very respectful of the SAG-AFRA strike situation, so we're not going to talk about any specific projects, but so many people along the way who are part of your story, and I, I will say, starting out, I would love to have been a fly on the wall with you and Harry Dean Stanton at Dantana's back in the day. We had some fun, I'll tell you. We went to a restaurant in L.A. called Dantana's, and it's right just two doors down from a wonderful club called The Troubadour, 
It was around since the 60s in L.A. And a wonderful club that had great acts there. You know, the Eagles, Bette Midler, Elton John, Jackson Brown, comedians uh, went up there. All the top comedians were often opening acts. And I was an opening act for their uh, Don McLean, Candy, John Sebastian, uh, lots of other people I opened for at the Troubadour and at other venues at Nassau Coliseum. So I toured as a stand-up comic for a while. Harry Dean was key to me, you know, getting to know people in L.A. and getting to have some wisdom as an actor and as a person because of his fondness for a guy named Alan Watts. And I didn't know until I read the book that uh, at least for a short time there, you were in a comedy team with Michael Richards. I did have a comedy duo with Michael Richards. We went to L.A. Valley College together, Los Angeles Valley College in the San Fernando Valley, where we both lived. And uh, we decided to go on share chutzpah. We got a, 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 a slot at the open mic night. They called it the Hoot Night at the Troubadour. We went up there and did very well. So the owner, Doug Weston, wanted to manage us. And we pursued it a bit, but never quite got any headway because I didn't have the work discipline that Michael had or anyone should have to be a stand-up comic. So as a duo, we uh, Michael went in, he went off in the Army. He got drafted, went off and served in Germany. And so I went off on my own and finally sat down and wrote some material. And I, that's when I started to tour and open for people like Don McLean and Neil Sadaka and, you know, at the Troubadour in the bottom line, Max's Kansas City, Nassau Coliseum, I went all over and, and really got some great training as a comedian by doing stand-up. Uh, we've had the pleasure of talking with so many friends of Harry Nielsen, uh, from Jimmy Webb to Mickey Dolenz, uh, Brian Wilson, Alice Cooper, Harry's son, Keith. Can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with Harry? I met Harry Nielsen through mutual friends, and we hit it off right away because he was in, of Irish uh, extraction, I think, too. He had some Irish uh, heritage, uh, and so I certainly had a thirst like he did, like many Irish people do. He could hoist a few, and so I made the mistake of trying to outdrink him more than once, and I <laughs> paid a dear price for that. But he introduced me to John and Yoko. He introduced me to the, uh, you know, to the whole Monty Python gang. I got to meet Eric Idle and Graham Chapman and all of that lot, John Cleese through him. So I'm very grateful for Harry Nilsson's wonderful influence on my life in many ways. He was a, a great friend and a great musician, great songwriter, and uh, Una, his wonderful widow, is still around and has a wonderful family, uh, great, great kids. I'm very happy to know those great people. And, and there's a wonderful story in the book about how that introduction to John and Yoko uh, enabled you to, to at least place a call to be a part of a little plot, a little plan. Yeah. they were. Well, we were having dinner with them with John and Yoko, and it was Harry and Una, me, and John and Yoko, and Sean in the other room and uh, asleep. But they talked about watching... First of all, they were fans of Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, which I couldn't get my mind around if they even knew who I was, but they did. And then they started talking about watching another show called Saturday Night Live where a like $1,000 was a check was held up by Lauren Michaels saying, we'd like to offer you guys, I hear you're talking of a reunion, you're fielding a lot of offers for a reunion, but if you come on Saturday Night Live, we will give you, and then held up the check, $1,000, put it up any way you like. 
And so they watched that together. John Lennon and, uh, and Paul McCartney saw that and went, let's get in the cab and go down there and get, get our check. You know, they, they're going to play a joke like that on us. We'll top them by going down and actually picking up the check and playing a few boxes of music. <laughs> and they got down there and somehow, I don't know what happened, they, they turned around at some point. One or both of them decided that wasn't a good idea. So they were proposing to do it again. My friend Buck Henry was going to host the show. And so he said, we're going to do it again and offer them 2000 You know, if just one of them comes or what have you. And they, they didn't take him up on it. But I got to be the, the go-between and call John and Yoko and tell them of this plan in case they wanted to, to go to, you know, 30 Rock and, and pick up a check. I love that story. We're talking with Ed Begley Jr. His book is entitled To the Temple of Tranquility and Step on It. Uh, another regular on our show who's a great friend of yours, the wonderfully talented Peter Asher. God, I love Peter. I see him all the time. He and his wife, Wendy, are dear friends of Rochelle and mine. And uh, actually, Peter's right now in New York. My wife is there, too. They went to see Ed Ruscha, the artist Ed Ruscha's show, and saw a lot of Broadway shows. So we're very close to the Ashers, and what a talent he is. Great songs he's written. Uh, World Without Love is a great song. He certainly, I think he kind of finished the song. That, that was a song that Paul McCartney had started to write, and then uh, Peter finished it up and had a great hit with it, of course. But uh, great songs were written by Paul on his piano in his uh, parents' house, and there's an incredible history with Peter Asher and the Beatles and everybody, and uh, James Taylor and Linda Ronstadt and all these great talents that he uh, managed over the years. He's a great record producer, he's a great manager, and a great, great friend. Uh, our producer, uh, Kerry Haskell, this is his last week on the show before he moves to New Orleans. He and his wife bought a house there a few years ago, and one of his favorite spots, uh, it comes up in the book. You mentioned when you were shooting a film with Paul Schrader, stopping in for lunch at Commander's Palace. Great restaurant. I went there in the 80s. The food is fantastic, and the ambiance, of course, in that great city, everywhere, and certainly in that restaurant is incredible. I, I, I was back there uh, recently doing a, a, form, a new show uh, called Queer as Folk and really enjoyed that. I just love getting to New Orleans. It's spectacular. My friend Harry Shearer and Judith Owen live there in that fine city, so uh, everything about that town is great for me. Since we spoke with you last summer, Ed, uh, we've lost a friend of our show, but a, a great friend and a longtime friend of yours, Cindy Williams. Uh, what a remarkable woman. And, and another great story in your book of uh, a relationship that, that didn't go the way you wanted early in life, but certainly turned out to be longer and probably much more beneficial than if you'd had a romance. She was a great friend. I, was, I had a mad crush on Cindy Williams, but she had the good taste of have affections for a man that was uh, uh, an incredible producer and a, became a dear friend of mine. His name was Harry Geddes. But before that, I took her on a date before she went with Harry. I picked her up in my electric car, and I think the kid on the big wheel was passing us by. It was going so slow. You know, a butterfly went past us. Uh, so I didn't get a second date out of that, but we had a good laugh about it. We became great friends, and we're great friends till she passed about a year ago now. What a great lady I met. Everybody in Hollywood I met, I probably met through her. And uh, what a talent. Uh, travels with my aunt, The Conversation, American Graffiti. You know, people know her for Laverne and Shirley, and she was fantastic in that series with Penny Marshall. 
but what a great film actress she was, too, and uh, an amazing friend and godmother to my daughter, Amanda. And every time she was on with us, she made a point of telling a story, usually involving your electric car, especially the time when you, you killed all the power at her house at a big party. That's right. I plugged in. Come on, I just need a little bit of oomph to get back home. I plugged in and everything died, the music and everything. So I can't believe she still <laughs> continued to speak to me right up to the end. <laughs> Amazing lady. I loved her a lot. Boy, it sure sounds too, Ed, like uh, all of us would be lucky if we had a friend in life like you did with Bruno Kirby. He was an amazing man. My dad was a, a great father and a great person. He taught me some great lessons. But there was kind of a feeling of Dar Darwinism in my house, you know, kind of every man for himself, too, which I needed a bit of. I'll be quite honest with you. I went to military school for a while, and I needed that. I needed some structure in my life. But as far as loyalty and really being there for your friends, Bruno was a, a teacher to me and so many other people. He lived it. He was a, he was a kind man. He was a great talent. Donnie Brasco, Godfather too. You know, when Harry met Sally, uh, City Slickers, everything that he did on stage and on screen, big and small screen, he was always spectacular. And he really guided me as a person and as an actor to pursue my craft better, to be more serious about it, not just want to get a series and make some money but to work on the craft and do good work, that all came from Bruno. So I will forever be in his debt. That's great, great friend. You write a couple, uh, about a couple of harrowing incidents that uh, both happened to take place on February 17th, uh, which you refer to as your lucky day in the book. And it, it was Bruno that kind of helped you uh, reframe the way you looked at those incidents. He did. He always tried to find the positive. He reasoned that there was no point in dwelling on the negative. It was there and you, I'd accept it and deal with it, but focus, take the high road and focus on what, what's working in your life and, you know, make things positive. And so I, I did that. I was in the hospital with a fractured femur. I'd gotten going out foolishly between sets at the ice house. I was going to try to run to a Hollywood party between sets, and the, the foolishness of that occurred to me finally. And I started to head back to the ice house, and the guy ran a red light and put me in traction and a spike cast for 14 weeks. So it, it was a mess. And Bruno brought me food every day, went to the bank for me with my checks, and d did everything a person could do. He lived in Hollywood, and I don't know if you know the geography well, Rich, but from Hollywood to Pasadena is no quick drive, you know. And he would do that every day and uh, help me, nourish me back to health, took me around to different functions, and then O'Toole's birthday party, his girlfriend's birthday party, me in a full spiker cast in the back seat, you know, laying horizontally and kind of at an angle to fit into the car, mm -hmm. six foot four with plaster on everything but my my right leg. Uh, what a friend. We lost him in 2006, the same year I lost my wonderful first wife, Ingrid. So I'll never forget Bruno. He, he changed my life into the better. There's a wonderful story in the book about your friendship uh, with with Brandflakes, uh, Marlon Brando, who uh, wanted you to get involved in a project. It wasn't quite what you expected, though. No. I mean, he would call me up and Edward, it's Brandflakes. Give me a shout. I've got a, <laughs> I got a production I want to do. There's a project. I have all the financing in place, and we've got distribution. Get up here and let's get started, for God's sake. I ran up there. Wow, he's got the financing. He's got distribution. There's a project he wants to do with me. Finally, we can talk about acting. We never really talked about acting. We talked about, like, mechanical stuff and solar panels, and here we go. Wow, 
So I got up there and he started to say, Ed, you know how many how many volts an electric eel puts out? <laughs> how, how many volts an electric eel? No, I don't know how many volts. A couple hundred volts maybe, but a fraction of an amp, not a lot of current. See, this is why it's perfect for you. We're going to put electric eel. What's the name of the town down the coast? I started to rattle off names. Huntington Beach, Seal Beach. Or, no, go further. La Jolla, La Jolla, that's it. They're going to give me a bunch of electric eels, and we're going to put them in every... What are you going to do with the eels? You mean like a moat to keep people away from your house? He was very private. I thought he was going to have a moat with electric eels. No, no, we're going to power every home in America. You're going to power every home in America with electric eels? Rich, I thought he was winding me up. I thought he was having me on. But no, he was serious. He wanted to power his home with electric eels. And so I I brought, you know, I brought up uh, the the reasons why that would not work and he he was disappointed. He wanted to he wanted to harness literally I think harness the eels, put a little harness on them with some wires to capture the voltage, which wouldn't have been very practical. But he did have some great ideas. He and Dr. Craven, this friend of his who's a wonderful scientist, came up with something called deep ocean uh, water cooling. We in resorts the kilowatt hour is very expensive, like in Tahiti where Marlin had property. Very expensive because it all comes in in the form of diesel fuel, then you burn the diesel fuel to generate power. So to get the diesel fuel there to Tahiti and then to burn it, it's like 50 cents a kilowatt hour. It's very expensive. So, But if you could do important chores with that energy, most of it is for heat, for cooling people to keep the food cold and the, the workers cold and the, the guests cold, not cold, but cool. You can do that with deep ocean water for just a fraction of the energy. And he came up with that system with Dr. Craven, and it's uh, amazing. It's working today in uh, tropical areas. That's Marlin's invention with Dr. Craven. I love the work you've done through the years with Christopher Guest, and uh, as you say in the book, he really got you out of, well, what you call movie prison. I was. I was in movie jail for good reason. I had been in a few movies that didn't do very well. They were not only box office failures, but critical failures, and you can get away with the latter, but not the former. If you don't make money after a few movies and you're one of the stars of the movie, they start to see a pattern emerge. And so I I didn't work. In, I could go to Australia and do a movie with a little girl and a kangaroo, and I did. It's called Joey. You know, watch it somewhere. You'll see what I was up to in the 90s. So I didn't work at all in studio movies, save two, two jobs. I got a job on Batman Forever for a a week, and I had a few weeks on a movie called Greedy. But that was it the whole decade. Otherwise, I could do television and did. But Chris put me in best in show. He broke me out of movie jail. He, you know, paid my bail. <laughs> He's a great friend. And then I got the next one, the next one. So I got went back to working in movies because of Chris Guest's trust in me and his kindness in putting me in best in show and all those other movies. I owe him a great deal. We've talked uh, before, Ed, about your environmental activism that you you started long before uh, most people were aware of you as an actor. I, I was wondering, as I read the book, uh, did your friendship with Cesar Chavez have an influence on your efforts to, to try and make a difference in the world? 100%. He was the man I looked up to because he wanted justice for the people who worked in the fields, as he used to as a young man. He and his wife, his wife Helen, both had been workers in the field for years, so they knew what that struggle was like. And there was an environmental connection with Cesar Chavez and me, too, because the people who were getting hit hardest by the pesticides and the fungicides and the herbicides and all the misuse and overuse and abuse of those different substances 
with the workers in the field. They'd be there, and the, the planes would come over and spray while they were working below them. And so they'd come home with these horrible chemicals and dust, toxic dust on their clothing. Their families would be affected by it, too. So, you know, the, the environmental connection between uh, Sazer and I was deep, and I worked with them on different environmental issues and workers' rights issues, and I had the sadness and the honor of carrying his coffin through the streets of Delano when he passed in 1993. Well, and you have uh, fought that fight for many, many years. Uh, your products are great. We've talked about those. Matter of fact, just yesterday I was using my, my Begley's Best Stain Remover. Oh, thank you for that, Rich. You're so kind to use that and to bring that up. I years ago wanted to have non-toxic cleaning products. I used baking soda instead of common. I used vinegar and water instead of Windex. And I saved money, and it was also clean. But I always thought there must be some way to do a formula that cleans more aggressively than vinegar and baking soda, but, you know, non-toxic. And I found some stuff with my dear friends at Lab Clean, and I work with them, and we vet the formulas together, make sure they they clean well and they're non-toxic. Because you got kids, let's say you use a toxic for floor cleaner or use something on the floor to clean up a mess. Uh, you, you don't want that on the floor because often kids are crawling around the floors, putting their, their fingers and their toes in their mouth, and your pets are crawling on the floors and putting their paws in their mouth. And, you know, these wonderful, vulnerable creatures and kids can get affected by that. So you want to have a non-toxic home, certainly when you ask people to, as I have asked people to, seal up their home and make it more energy efficient. Great. Now you've sealed it up. You've got all these toxic chemicals under the sink. Get rid of them. Try not just mine. Mine are fine, and please try them if you wish. But also, Seventh Generation makes wonderful products. There's other people out there that make wonderful products. So try one of them, and I hope it's mine, but any of them are good. Just get out of that toxic treadmill and try something that works well, which ours do, and also is safe. And I think it says a lot about you and, and also about your good judgment when it comes to people that you were able to become great friends with your first wife, Ingrid, after your divorce. What a great lady she was. The fact that she would befriend me after my failed attempt at marriage, you know, there was one of the two partners that was not good at marriage the first time out, and that was me. And so I got better at the second time, but we became friendly, thank God, through her kindness and good friends and best friends, and we were like brother and sister when she passed in 2006. So I'm so glad that I had that lady in my life, two great kids, of course, and my son gave me some wonderful grandchildren. But she was a kind and very funny lady. We laughed together. We took a trip together, get this, Rich, in my car. We rode up together, my current wife in the front seat with me, driving up to Oregon for our, my daughter's birthday. Ingrid in the back seat with my then five-year-old daughter, Hayden. So there's Rochelle and Ingrid talking about everything you can imagine, you know, united against a common enemy, <laughs> me. <laughs> the line was actually heard, oh, he's still doing that? Imagine what it was like when he had hair and a career. So <laughs> had a lot of laughs, and the fact that she uh, continued to be my friend speaks a lot about her and, and also about my good fortune. And on that trip, you write in the book about she even bunked with Rochelle. She did. We were going to get rooms. We stopped in uh, Shasta for the night on the way from L.A. to Bend, Oregon for the wedding. Our daughter, that, our, our daughter being hey, uh, Amanda, my daughter Amanda, 
which is uh, Ingrid's daughter and uh, and my daughter. So she's getting married, and we stopped for the night with Rochelle and my daughter, which is Hayden. So Hayden and I are told to sleep in a bed over here while the ladies stay up and they watch uh, War of the Roses. Have you seen that? Movie? Oh, yeah, yes, I have. I, I'm not sure if I want those two women watching that, if I'm you. <laughs> I realized I did. It's about an acrimonious divorce that ends in murder. So the two of them, they're watching War of the Roses all, all hours, and I'm trying to sleep with one eye open, wondering what's coming next. Fortunately, my young daughter was there to protect me in case they, things turned ugly. Well, and you have clearly met your match in so many ways with Rochelle. Yeah, she's very funny. She's uh, a, a great wife, a great partner in so many ways. She cares deeply about the environment, too. She made a wonderful home for us here in our new home, which is a lead platinum home. And it's beautiful the way she wanted it, and it's energy efficient the way I wanted it. And uh, I was never going to move out of my my previous home, which is a very small house in Studio City. But now I have something that uh, I didn't know that I wanted. I fought her tooth and nail, and now I think I'm happier here than she is. I got a great vegetable garden. I got nine kilowatts of solar. I got a 10,000-gallon rainwater tank. So I, I got a, the greenest home I could ever dream of owning, and it's pretty the way she wants. It's a French Mediterranean design by a great architect named William Hefner. So it's, it's a beautiful home. Uh, Ed, the book is is an absolutely wonderful read. Funny, touching, uh, poignant. You seem you seem grateful for all of the experiences in your in your life, and and you offer some great advice. And it's well what every actor tries so hard to do, and it it feels like you have managed to accomplish it. And that's the ability to live in the moment. Yeah, it was a key moment for me years ago when I got a hold of this book. My friend Neil Rhodes gave me this book called This Is It. It's written by a very uh, wise man by the name of Alan Watts, a philosopher, a, a great writer. And if you hear that title, you might just get what it's about and perhaps embrace it in your life, which is, this is it. This is it right now, this moment with you and I, Rich, that we're happening, that's happening right this second. That's really all there is. There has been a past, of course. I'm not denying that. There will be a future, and you have to plan for the future and remember the past. But most people spend too much time living in the past and worrying about the future. This is it right now, Rich. This moment right now, if you can really engage and be here with me, and I know you are, and I promise you I'm 100% there with you and listening to you and engage with you, that's beautiful, too. It's not that it's just going to be better tomorrow. It's better right now for most folks. There are some people who it's not better for at all, the people enduring the quake there miles and miles away from us on the other side of the world the people in Morocco and elsewhere. You know, we have to, those who have been fortunate, have to gather ourselves and be present for for our life and then go and be of help to people who need it with earthquakes and other problems around the world. Problems right here in our own country. People who haven't eaten, people unhoused right now here in our own country. So there's lots of work to do, environmental work and other stuff. But don't try to do it frantically, Don't, as I did in the past, be on 20 different boards, and do 20 different jobs poorly. Do one job well rather than 20 jobs poorly. Get yourself centered. I want to protect the environment too, but you don't protect it by running around like a crazy man and, you know, being frantic about it. Get centered. Be present in the moment. This is it right now. And then go from there. The book is To the Temple of Tranquility and Step on It. It's available October 4th from Hatchet Books and everywhere 
fine books are sold. Every moment we get to spend talking with you, Ed, is terrific. Thank you so much for being with us today. We wish you wonderful success with the book. Uh, we're pulling for uh, the strike to end fairly for the actors and the writers out there and uh, and hope you uh, you and your family continue to be happy and healthy. Right back at you, Rich. Great interview as always. You're wonderful to talk to. Well, I just love talking to him. He's such a great guy. Ed Begley Jr., the memoir out officially in early October to the Temple of Tranquility and Step on It. When we come back, music legend Judy Collins here on Downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. from Judy Collins, all original tunes called Spellbound. We had a chance to talk with Judy about that, her current tour, and more as she joined us here on Downtown. Hi there. How are you doing? I am wonderful. How are you this morning? Very well. Thanks so much. Well, it's wonderful to hear your voice again. Thank you so much for coming back on with us. Very excited for the show. What will people see when they get a chance to uh, see you on this tour? Well, a lot of the new songs from my brand new album, Spellbound, which is all my own songs, plus some of the uh, classic Judy Collins songs, Amazing Grace, uh, Someday Soon, um, that sort of thing. The new album, by the way, is is just terrific. Uh, right from the get-go, the title song, Spellbound, it, it weaves such a fabulous tale and pulls you right in. Oh, great. I love it. I'm so excited that I was finally able to write all these songs myself. <laughs> I, I have to ask, is there a, a true story behind Hell on Wheels? Yes. Wow. <laughs> yes. And what was yes. the story? It happened just as it says in the, in the song that I was uh, working at a, a lodge and Rocky Mountain in the Rocky Mountains when I was 17. I had just gotten my driver's permit and I borrowed a car, Chevy, Chevy uh, convertible, 60, 52 Chevy convertible. And I took off to see a friend of mine. I was working in Grand Lake at a, at a uh, mountain lodge. And um, I went off to Estes Park to see a friend of mine who was working at another lodge. And coming back, I almost ran ran into these two little kids sitting in the dirt. And uh, <laughs> I, as I say in the in the song, um, it was hell on wheels, and I could have caused a lot of havoc if I hadn't run into the fence instead of the kids. <laughs> wow. 
And uh, I, I love uh, the, the song about Thomas Merton. What a wonderful song. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I'm a great devotee of Thomas Merton. I'm not a Catholic, but I love his writing. And uh, I found out that some some gentlemen who investigate this sort of thing discovered that he was actually murdered in Thailand. Mm. It was uh, covered up for how many years? He died in 68, so it was a long period of covering up. They wrote a, they wrote a book called The Martyrdom of Thomas Merton <clears throat> not too long ago, and uh, it was a shock. But anyway, I wrote it in a way as a mystery story. I'm just curious, at this point in your career, you have had so many uh, successful albums. Was there any hesitation in putting your own compositions out there? Oh, no. I decided that the poetry that, that I was writing, I would have to figure out if there were songs in those poems. And so I took them to the piano and began to see how far they could go with making songs. And I was very happy with what I got. <laughs> well, you should. I got be. a lot of other. I got a lot of other songs that are not on the album. They'll come out soon somewhere. Well, I I love the fact that you uh, you continue to do new things and, and take on new challenges. I, I was thinking that perhaps more than anyone I can think of, you have rendered the notion of musical genres uh, pretty obsolete from from what we would call folk songs to pop hits, uh, doing Sondheim. Uh, the wonderful album you did a few years ago, um, Winter Stories, which got you a number one album on the bluegrass charts. Who would have expected that? <laughs> yeah, I was lucky. That was an album I made with uh, a group called the Chatham County Line and a singer from Norway named Jonas Fjeld. And we had a wonderful time making that album. And we were we were pleasantly surprised when, you know, uh, Billboard called me when I made the number one slot in the bluegrass category. They were very excited. They <laughs> said, this is your very first number one in all the years we've... And, I, and then I said to the guy who called me, I said, well, I've had an awful lot of other numbers, too, you know. <laughs> We're talking with Judy Collins here on downtown. Go ahead, Bruce. Yeah. Hi, Judy. Bruce Pratt. Um, I wanted to ask you a question. I, uh, my friend Garnet Rogers may not come down off the cloud he's on, having had a chance to play with you not too long ago. Oh, I love Garnet Rogers. What uh, a sweetheart. Yeah, he's one and of the Brilliant, best. brilliant singer, songwriter, performer. I just adore him. I'm so lucky that I get to work with him once in a while. Well, Garner was pretty excited about it, too, and he mentioned something that you just brought up a moment ago about, about composing at the piano. He told me you still practice Rachmaninoff and other classical players, which I can understand to keep your chops up, but does that help yes. with your songwriting, too? Well, I always wind up writing the songs at the piano. I never, I think I wrote one song at the guitar in all these years, so that's where I can see what I'm doing. And uh, I get going at the piano and uh, I find out whether it's a song or not. When you take a song that someone else has written, let's say Send in the Clowns, which was tremendously successful for you. Now, if I remember the story right, Stephen Sondheim wrote that tailored to 
Glennis Johns, who was was not known as a, a great singer. But how do you then take it and, and change your interpretation and, and really make it your own? I just turn it into a Judy Collins song. That's all I know. <laughs> well, I saw the show on Broadway, and and when I was a bit younger, and um, when I first heard you sing that on record, I was just blown away. I thought. It was. It's a great song, but it's a way better song now. And and I think it, it was just the clarity and the power of the way you delivered it. It was that stuck Thank with me a long you. time. I was lucky to find it, and uh, I thank, in retrospect, I thank Leonard Cohen again because his best friend, one of his best friends from his growing up and his whole life she was probably the last person to see him alive um nancy bacall became my friend in 1966 and in 1973 she called me up and said i'm sending you over a copy of the new uh sondheim um uh musical little night music and she said there's a song on there that you've got to sing and it was sending the clowns so in a way, it was it was also from Leonard. So I've always been very grateful to Leonard for a lot of things. Uh, you took uh, Joni's both sides now and made it into a wonderful head. And, and when you talk about timeless recordings, that sounds as fresh now uh, as it did uh, back then. And, and I think uh, to a few years ago, it's such a cinematic song anyway. And I don't know if you ever watched the series Mad Men, but they used it in, in an episode yeah. of that. And it was so incredibly powerful. The, there was no dialogue. It was simply your recording of both sides now. I was really amazed when that happened. I was surprised. I was not a Madman fan. I didn't watch it, but I certainly did after it. <laughs> Both sides now was in it. I hope Joni saw it. <laughs> Maybe she'll write me a letter yet. <laughs> well, you know, Rich has mentioned some songs from, from way back. Um, I had a chance to talk with uh, Jack Elliott the other day, and he said, you'd be sure to say hi to Judy. So I'm saying hi from Jack. <laughs> I love Jack. Oh, Ramblin and he loves Jack. you, too. Let me tell Ramblin you, he loves you, Jack. too. But what Ramblin' Jack... angel. I adore him. Yeah, me me too. I've done a lot of my youth. Some would say misspent with Jack. But one of the things that, that, that um, I think about is how... I always have the sense when you perform, when you write, when you record, that you're always part of you is back in those days. It's always yeah. back when music first became really, really important to you. Is that that pretty yeah. accurate? Oh, yes. And because I am a storyteller as well as a singer, I transplant us back to back and forth between 1955 when I found the guitar and uh, put aside the piano for a little while um, and into my youth. I mean, I, I constantly tell stories about the intermingling and the intertwining of my life with music, with the stories that I heard and the songs that I learned and how magical that is. You know, last night in New York, um, I got together with, with, uh, my old friend Peter Yarrow, and uh, we had a reminiscence of lots. Of We've known each other since 1961 when we met up in uh, 
at Gertie's Folk City in New York City, and uh, I was the headliner, and and Peter was, uh, I mean, uh, Peter Yarrow, I don't mean Peter Yarrow, I mean, <laughs> Arlo Guthrie was my opener, and so Peter and I often talk about those early years when I first met Yarrow, when he had when he had uh, just started to sing with Mary. And he used to say to me, now, if it doesn't work out with Mary, keep your schedule clear. (laughs) (laughs) You know, one of the things that I find so fascinating about people that had success in that era was was that there's a great genuine affection to this day among among those people and you know sometimes the music business gets painted in a with a with an ugly brush backstabbing and all this kind of stuff but i, I found that, that that jack and and, and van ronk and eric anderson all the people that i worked with later um all really had a genuine affection for one another is that is that accurate or is that just just nostalgia it's very accurate with the with one exception and i won't mention the name <laughs> well, that's okay. I, 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 I can understand that, and I think I might have a guess, but I won't even try. Oh, well, you do. <laughs> well, uh, and part- it's probably just jealousy. I think it's just jealousy and misbehavior, and the um, the idea that uh, you know saying nasty things about other people is something that was not popular in in our group. But it was very outstanding with the one person I'm thinking of. And I do think it was Josie. I don't, I mean, I think I have to forgive that person and say, look, human nature is flawed, (laughs) as Mm. we know. (laughs) Uh, Apart from your music, you have uh, done so much wonderful work uh, as an activist through the years. How did you develop that, that sense of activism and then getting involved in making the world a better place? Well, you know, my father was very much of an activist, and he taught us at the dinner table every night to uh, discuss what was going on in the world and to try to make a difference by helping out, you know, and uh, creating, hopefully, understanding in the world and also trying to right the wrongs that we saw in the world. So when the 60s came along, I was completely ready to take part in that and uh, you know Peter and I last night and my husband and his wife and and our our dinner companion we talked about it a lot I mean how the world has changed and what we can do about it and you know he has he has this foundation against bullying he's had a lot of uh, time doing that and working on that particular issue and of course bullying we've seen bullying come to to fruition in terms of our political mm. uh, life. And, uh, you know, certain people create the atmosphere and let it happen and, and uh, rally around it. And and it's not a good thing, especially for young kids. Do you see that sense of responsibility among artists as much today uh, as you did in the 60s and 70s? Oh, absolutely. I think uh, from the get-go and also things like we are the world which was transformative and all of the artists who pay attention to what's going on in the world and try to make a difference i mean i think it's i think it's the result of absorbing the ideas that came out of woody guthrie and pete seeger's mouths and lives 
Well, Judy, it's uh, so wonderful to have the chance to speak with you again. It's so great to have new Judy Collins music out there. Uh, thank you so much for making time for us today. Thank you, and give my love to Garnet. I will do that. I will talk to him today later. Good. Much love. Thanks so much. The great Judy Collins on Downtown Hour. Thanks to Judy. Thanks to Ed Begley Jr. And, of course, thanks to you for joining us this week. We remind you that Downtown is brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll see you next time on Downtown.